Narcissists and other toxic people tend to isolate their loved ones and partners, but we often don't recognize it's happening until we've discovered our social support system has shrunk. In this episode, Tara and I are going to discuss why this happens and what to do if it's happening to you. But maybe it's happening to someone that you know and love. If so, be sure to stay tuned because we're going to give some advice on how to help somebody who finds himself in this position. Instead of a self-help tip, today we're going to take a listener's question about how to co-parent more effectively with a narcissistic ex. And have you signed up for our weekly newsletter? You can do so at Substack at Breaking Free with Carrie and Tara. Thank you for joining us on Breaking Free from Narcissistic Abuse. I'm Dr. Carrie Kerr McAvoy, a mental health specialist with over 20 years of counseling experience. And I'm Tara Blair Ball, a certified relationship coach. This is a listener-supported podcast. Please consider becoming a supporter of the show for less than a cup of coffee. When my relationship started with my narcissistic ex, I had a very diverse group of people that I was friends with, that I hung out with regularly. I felt really supported and cared for and people that I trusted to give me good advice and support. But the longer I was in that relationship, I found that I was starting to pull away, partly because I felt ashamed of what was going on in that relationship and really didn't feel comfortable sharing. I would share some things and then people might be like, well, that's kind of messed up. And so I'd be like, can't share with those people anymore. (laughs) And so I found myself choosing to leave those relationships. But then other ones I felt like ended sort of outside of my own control. Either they chose not to be friends with me anymore or they didn't like my ex at the time. I would hear comments like that, like, I don't really like him for some reason or he kind of makes me feel weird. I don't want to hang out anymore. And so it wasn't until near the end of that relationship that I started to realize and look around that I really didn't have any relationships just for me anymore, that he sort of weaseled his way into all of those relationships and that the relationships that I did have were kind of shallow or superficial because I'd been trying to hide and not share myself as completely. I felt too ashamed or uncomfortable. And then other relationships where people just thought, oh, he was just wonderful. He could do no wrong. He's so nice. And when I looked around, I really didn't have any relationships that I felt like I could use to help me finally leave. And I had to choose to make the decision to leave, knowing it might mean that I'd be utterly alone. I did some of the same as you. I felt like I couldn't really totally be honest because I didn't like what I was doing or who I was Mm -hmm. becoming. Or it was so crazy that no one would say I should stay. My closest friends would say, what's up? What's wrong with you? This makes no sense. So the minute I would even test somebody and then they'd get a little bit of like this odd look that would cross their face, like, you can't talk to this person. So it was becoming isolated because of that. But it was also becoming isolated. And here's, I wonder if this happened to you. I didn't hear that it has, but I was under 24-7 supervision, mm-hmm. partly because he, I couldn't trust him alone. We were running a business together, but he was really not to be alone. Anytime I suspected he was alone, I had no idea what he was up to, and I didn't believe that he was up to good things, which, you know, looking very like, and I stayed. Why would I stay? Well, I stayed because mm-hmm. lots of complicated reasons. But the reverse happened was whenever I was on the phone, that meant he was overhearing that phone call. Mm-hmm. And you can't really talk about sensitive stuff if he's in the room. And then he's likely to comment, not necessarily always like, why did that person say that? Or what was that all about? He may or may not say that. 
But I was just aware that he was aware and that he may weigh in. And it just didn't feel safe to have relationships. So my reaching out significantly dropped. I just Mm -hmm. stopped connecting with family, stopped connecting with friends. And so he didn't really have to become manipulative to get me to stop. I just naturally let it go. But I know a lot of people end up experiencing their partner running their family down or their closest friends down or even insinuating this person is not good for them or doesn't like the partner. I know that there's a lot of ways in which narcissistic individuals drive wedges in relationships. So this is a real common thing that partners of narcissists end up very isolated, very much on their own. And it makes sense when you think about it because of the control. Mm-hmm. And if you are the sole person of input, then you get sole control over what happens to another person's life. But yeah, I was very, very isolated, very isolated. Yeah. And I think it makes, for one, our inability or discomfort and sharing what's really going on with other people also makes it really isolating too. Because when we may try to leave, which was in my experience, when I finally did try to leave and started just like openly sharing you know, really just trauma dumping on everyone around me. Like, this is what's happened. This is what you didn't know about. Please help me. Nobody believed me. Mm. They just thought I was like making it up. They're like, you and I have known each other for years and you never told me. And those are people who are not safe for abuse victims to be friends with. Those are people who are not informed on what it's like to be an abuse victim or have never been an abuse victim themselves. I know today what it's like to be in that relationship where I could not share. I was so uncomfortable. I felt responsible. I I, I couldn't, you know? And so I get what it's like to finally get to the end of that relationship and finally feel kind of free to share what had really happened. And then so frustrated when we're sort of gaslighted by the other people around us who minimize that and validate it. You never told me. It must not have been that big of a deal. Why are you making a big deal of it now? And that secondary gaslighting, man, that's painful. Like it, it rocked my world because I thought once I really share this stuff, these people will have my back and they'll help support me leave. No, that was the work of the narcissist in that relationship is that he had really created such a net for himself. And I didn't have that for me. I didn't get that kind of gaslighting from friendships, but I got something a little different. I got more of the angle of, If it's that dark or bad or that kind of acting out happening, why are you staying? I really was made to feel crazy, like Mm -hmm. I was defective or broken. In fact, even still now, sometimes if I share something on social media, somebody will write in and say, well, if you had better self-esteem, that would never have happened. You can feel that person looking at you and saying, you are, something's really off with this picture. Or they'll accuse you of not having good boundaries. And yes, that was true. I wasn't having really good boundaries, but there was a whole lot of reasons why I was struggling with my boundaries. It wasn't just because I, as a person, don't have good boundaries. And it's hard to explain the inside of these relationships mm-hmm. that make it hard to have good boundaries. Here's the other thing that isolated me too. I want to keep my options open. And I knew that if I start telling people, say that I, in fact, I, I just had this conversation with my middle son who's now is a roommate of mine. And at the time I started that relationship with a narcissist, he was a roommate of mine at that point too. And I remember coming home from the honeymoon, knowing now that my ex had been cheating. I just found out. And I remember going downstairs and looking at the light in his room and thinking about going and talking to him. Hmm. But he was 24 at the time, 23. That's young. I knew he'd right. never been in a relationship. 
And I also knew if I tell one of my sons that my new husband had been cheating on me, that's going to pit sides. Right. They're going to like, oh, I need to talk to him. And I couldn't imagine where that was going to go. <laughs> I, I even thought about talking to my sisters at the time. Again, everybody would want to protect me. But what happens right. if I decide I want to make this relationship work? Right. Then they're going to look at me and say, we went to bat for you over this and you're now going back. What is? I don't get it. I just had this happen. One of my club members is going back and trying with her husband and asked to step out of the club. There's a part of me, it's like, I hate to hear that because I've known enough what she said to realize that I'm worried for her and I'm worried about likelihood of the succeeding. But I also know that I've been there and sometimes we need to do that. That's part of the recovery process is to give every chance possible till we're clear this is not going to work. And then we then can move on and do something next. But not everybody knows how to do that with us and to give that kind of space for us. So that's the other thing that isolated me. I just knew that people would take sides and I couldn't bear that. Absolutely. To me, the topic has two folds. What do you do if you're the person who's in it and you look at your life and you think, wow, I don't really have a good support system anymore. I don't even know who I can talk to or what I should talk about. What should I do? How do I improve that? Maybe they don't really have a healthy support system. Maybe their assessment's valid. Or maybe they do actually have a good support system, but they're scared to know how to lean into it. So I think we could address that. But I also think there's another piece to this, and that is talking to those who are loving someone who's in a bad relationship and they want to know how to show up. How can they show up in a more useful, helpful way? So I kind of see two different listeners who may be wanting advice here. Let's talk about the first group first. If we find ourselves isolated, what should we do? When I talk with clients in this space, it's usually helpful to find people who are going through something similar because then they can absolutely understand without that level of judgment, which I think is really important. So this could be like finding a trusted third-party professional, like a therapist, mental health counselor, coach, or whatever it might be. It might be joining a club like yours, where it's other people going through the same thing, a domestic violence support group. We're wanting people who can have a level of understanding and empathy, because I think that's necessary. That was absolutely necessary for me, is that I needed people who could understand. It wasn't just that they had empathy, but that they had a level of understanding because they've been in it. So getting that would be important is looking for that because there are support and resources if we start looking for it, even if it's just online. One of the things I did was I started looking for Facebook online groups. Mm -hmm. And that was for me at the time, I thought it was a sex addiction problem, but I found great support in those realms. Really, really helpful support. So I totally agree. I think these days it's gotten easier than ever. And you're right. I also have my membership that's certainly available to anyone who's interested. I think the other challenges, if we have a healthy support system, but we're scared to lean into them, is I find that the best way through it is to ask for what I need, to be clear about that, to start the conversation with, hey, I want to talk to you about something really, really hard. And I need you to listen. And I'm really scared they're going to judge. I need you to know that I don't know what I'm going to do, but I just need someone to vent to. I need a sounding Mm -hmm. board. So in other words, we ask up front what we're looking for. That's more likely to guarantee their ability to show up. And we also set that conversation up for success because I know when I would share and didn't do that because I didn't know to do that, I would then get really angry and frustrated and would often feel really shut down because I would hear a lot of advice that it wasn't necessarily advice that felt right for me at the time. Like I heard a lot, just leave, which was the most unhelpful advice ever when I'm in a trauma bond and feel literally addicted to this relationship and feel dependent on it. 
for my happiness and livelihood, that advice was terrible. And the other thing that you said was if you're in relationship with somebody who's in a relationship like this, if you're friends with somebody who's in a bad relationship, just like that, the advice that you gave from the abuse victim to the friend, it can go the other way. Like they share something with you, being able to ask, would you like advice or feedback? What I have found helpful for me in those relationships is I mirror back what I'm hearing. You know, what I hear you say is, how do you feel about that? And as someone who has been in that type of relationship, I was so disconnected from my feelings and the reality of the experience that when I did have a friend mirror that and ask me questions like that, it started to help me work on those tools because it was like a muscle that had kind of atrophied because I had gotten so disconnected from how I was feeling that I, I really needed that help to work through that again, to get reconnected to how I was feeling. And so that exercise with my friend was really helpful. It is. It was really helpful. I think also for friends to know that the best way we can show up for somebody is just to be there. Believe it or not, it's always amazing to me, even as a clinician, often when I was doing counseling, I'd have people tell me really awful stories and I would wish I could make it better. I mean, Mm -hmm. they'd tell me things that, wow, I, I would love to fix their heartbreaking. I can't. I can't fix most of it. So I would feel really hopeless and helpless. What I know, and this is what I appreciate as a clinician and knowing as somebody who's gone through really hard things, is just having someone create the safety for me to say, to spill this stuff, to feel like I can be myself and not have to put on a show or put a front up is such a relief that just, just to be that safe space, that listening support is an enormous and magnificent gift that you're giving somebody. Yeah, It's really beneficial. And I think the other thing, and this is how I often give help, because sometimes I do have a suggestion, but I find that if I frame it instead of, you should try this, or why are you not doing that, to say, when I'm in this situation, this is the Mm -hmm. things I might think about, or I've tried, and this is how it worked for me. And then by giving it more from a standpoint of myself, I'm giving them the option to either pick it up and try it or not, because it's optional, and I'm only reflecting from myself. I'm not telling them what to do. And I think that's the other really hard part is that, Maybe those who've not ever been in a narcissistically abusive relationship don't appreciate that those who are in it feel controlled all the time. We feel we've lost most of our autonomy. I mean, I couldn't even hang the clothes right. I was being told how I should put stuff into the kitchen refrigerator that I wasn't stocking the refrigerator right. So when you're at that level of control, you're exhausted from people's input. So when someone just offers it from their perspective, it's such a relief because then I know I have the ability to not take it if it doesn't work because nobody's going to know the ins and outs the way that you know the ins and outs of your own life. I could make a hundred suggestions that might be great suggestions, but for you personally would never work. In 12-step fellowships, we call that sharing experience, strength, and hope. And mm. I think it's also beneficial that even if we aren't in or have not ever experienced an abusive relationship to imagine it from that perspective of like, How would we think about or do or react if we were in that specific situation our friend is? Being able to say something like, not just when I was in it, or if I heard that, I might feel blank. You know, being able to apply it from that way so they can see it from a somewhat distanced place. I think that's a valuable tool. That absolutely can be. Yeah, yeah. It's really helpful. And then the thing that I also find hard as a listener to it is that it is easy to have strong feelings. What we're hearing is rough stuff. It's gut-wrenching stuff. It it makes us angry. It makes us feel really sad, too, and broken for this person. And and we don't like that. And I think 
but realizing that we can feel those things, but it doesn't mean we have to fix it because we feel it. That we mm-hmm. can allow that to be another person's experience. You and I just talked on a previous episode about when you hear someone even threatening to harm themselves. And we said, you're not responsible for what somebody does or doesn't do. That's their responsibility. The same goes for this. We can hear people say heartbreaking things or even make choices we would never personally choose, but that's not our life. And we don't need to do anything with that. We can like, I know I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't put up with that or I wouldn't want to live like that, but it isn't my life. And I don't need to be invested in them making a different choice for their life. And I, that's a really hard emotional boundary that I think a lot of people struggle to find is that separation. Yeah, that's absolutely one I have to enact for myself is looking at, okay, I am investing so much time and energy into thinking about this person and what's going on in their lives. What am I avoiding looking at in my own life? Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you experience this too, is that When I am addressing something that I need to address, when I'm doing the work that I need to do, I really don't have a lot of time to sit there and wonder what other people are doing with their lives. It doesn't mean that I love them any less. I have had friends go through heart-wrenching things, and it doesn't mean that I don't love them. It doesn't mean any of that. But it does mean that sometimes for me personally, and you know, I codependency is absolutely my default. That's what I always go to when I'm stressed, overwhelmed, or dealing with something I don't want to deal with. That is what I go to is that I get busy or spend a lot of time looking at what other people are doing so I don't have to look at me Mm. because that's the other part where I may not want to be accountable for my words or actions or something that's going on. And so I I really have to spend a lot of work today just at looking at me. It does act as a bellwether of warning when we get overly invested about another person's life. It's an indication that we are not addressing either our own vulnerabilities in that area or our own woundedness in that area. It means there's work for us to do, but most people don't realize that. That's kind of a higher level psychology there is just, yeah, you you have a strong feelings about what your friend should be doing or not doing. And chances are you're not doing so well in that area either, which is why you have such strong feelings about it. Yeah. The healthier we are, the more, yeah, the more neutral and balanced we can be around things, the more we yeah. find our feet better. So we don't find our feet well, then we're in trouble in that area. Back to the person who's isolated. I think we should never allow any relationship to take up so much of our life that we don't have other relationships in it. That that yeah. just in itself is not a good thing. And there's a part of me, the romantic in me, is like, oh, I want to find the love that's like completes me and it's the perfect love. But the, the realistic part of me, like, Karen, that doesn't exist. You don't really want it, nor is it healthy. And you should always have multiple people in your life, maybe not multiple best friends, close friends, but you should have sources of people who could provide input. And if you have somebody who's crowding that out for whatever reason, it's maybe time to stop and look at why and what can you do to add it in. And if this person has been manipulative around it, like why you're taught back in touch with so-and-so again, I thought we agreed that that person's not good for you. I think that should be like, and, and yeah. we know people hear this. <laughs> I know. Yeah. But that should be a warning that you're in a relationship is real toxic because nobody should isolate you like that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And we have to look at how subtle it can be because I absolutely had people isolate me from relationships because it was good for me. You know what I mean? Like they would tell me that person is so toxic. That person is so unhealthy. Look, they're they're competing with you. And those were all 
ways to get me to start to judge that relationship and start to sort of step back when that's absolutely the opposite that I should have been doing. And I think it's important to look at the pattern because our partner can absolutely see if a relationship is negatively impacting us. And if they see that, it's awesome that they would voice that to us. But if it's a pattern that every time we have a close, intimate relationship, they somehow want to bring up the problems that there are with that other person or really look at their defects and point them out to you or whatever, it might be time to really evaluate, like, is my partner standing up for me and doing this out of care, back to that intention piece? Or are they doing it because they want to isolate me because they're actually an abuser? So we've got to look at that overall pattern. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. Absolutely. So today I'm going to be responding to a listener question. So here it is. Hi, Carrie and Tara. First, I want to express my deep gratitude for your podcast. Hearing your conversations has been incredibly helpful and validating. I've been divorced for over 10 years, but my co-parenting situation continues to expose me to narcissistic abuse on an ongoing basis. So I rely on resources like your podcast to help me thrive through it. I'm wondering if you have any resources in particular for people dealing with this in a co-parenting situation after divorce. I found that most resources out there are focused on how to leave a relationship and maybe some advice on what to do if no contact is not an option. But I found less guidance on how to manage an ongoing co-parenting relationship and how to protect the health of oneself and one's children. If you have any suggestions for resources, I'd be most grateful. I've been through coaching and rely on the Biff Method by Bill Eddy and have various tools in my toolkit, but I'm always open to more. First off, thanks for your letter. It's so sweet to hear how we are helping with our little podcast. So the first book that I always suggest people going through co-parenting with a toxic, narcissistic, abusive, predatory person is the book Co-Parenting with a Toxic Ex by Amy J.L. Baker. It has super helpful, actionable exercises for how to handle every aspect of a relationship with a partner who isn't the best or seems impossible to co-parent with. It has helped me a lot, especially when dealing with loyalty conflicts and making sure I have a strong relationship with my children and how to hold the other person accountable and to use my child custody plan to my benefit. The first thing, uh, and it sounds like this person is always is already doing it, is having limited contact. What limited contact means when we are co-parenting with someone in this behavior is that we only discuss the children. That means logistics and information specifically in regards to the children. I do not respond to any comments, texts, emails that have anything to do with anything else other than the children. So I may read all of it, go through all of it, but I will only respond to, oh, he he says he's going to get the children at this time. Great. That's what I'm going to respond to. This writer of this question also says that they use the BIF method. For anyone who doesn't know, BIF stands for Brief, Informative, friendly, factual. It's one tip for how we can respond to these types of people in the best and most beneficial way to ourselves. So your ex may say something horribly atrocious to you, but again, you're going to skim it. Only focus on the thing that has to do with your children. And you're going to say, great, hope you have a great day. Or great, I will be at the public library at this time. The kids are looking forward to seeing you. 
literally that's all that you're putting. Brief, informative, friendly, factual. You are covering your side of the street, making sure that you're taken care of and that your kids are taken care of in terms of the logistics being handled. So first off, we're extremely limiting conversation and communication. It sometimes is helpful to have one place to communicate. A lot of people recommend court-ordered or court-recommended apps to communicate, like My Family Wizard, Two Houses, Talking Parents. Those are helpful. I, at one point, only communicated with my ex via email, so I had blocked him on text messages, so we were just communicating on email, so it can be helpful to have one place where you communicate. And for example, let's say you say, hey, I want to communicate via email, but in the event of emergencies, you can text me. Well, let's say your your ex texts you anyway, and it's clearly not an emergency. Well, then you would go and respond to that communication via email. So you're enforcing the boundary that you are only communicating via email and only emergencies via text, meaning you are not going to respond via text. You are only going to respond email. I think the most difficult part around dealing with a narcissistic or toxic ex is we always have that hope that they are one day going to be cooperative and collaborative. And they may even give us sometimes that hope or glimmer that they are cooperative or collaborative. But we have to remember that these people are seeing the world in a different way that we do. It is like literally that we are playing checkers and they are playing chess. We have to protect ourselves as much as possible. That's why using email or court-recommended apps can be very helpful in terms of keeping documentation. It is also very helpful for you and for anyone to stick as closely to the child support plan as possible. Thank you for joining us today. Have a question or comment, email us at hello at breakingfreewithcarrieandtara.com. If this episode has been helpful, consider becoming a supporter. And if you haven't yet, make sure to follow us at Breaking Free from Narc Abuse on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. We'll see you back here next time.